Well, we're going to have a brief welcome here. Say uh, hello and good morning to everybody. Thanks for joining us for our seminar this morning as uh, we're still continuing our Philemon project. And uh, glad to welcome Thurman Williams hey, here with us you. again in Atlanta this week. And um, we'll have Luke Bobo presenting for us again this morning. We'll hand things over to Luke in just a moment. I wanted to issue a couple of reminders and then I'll have Thurman pray for Luke and for us uh, as we learn together this morning. But uh, the first thing I want to remind everybody of is the resources that are available to us on our Philemon Project webpage. So if you go to uh, InTown's website, InTown Community Church, go to our website and look under the tab marked What's Happening. And uh, on that list of things that are happening in our church right now is the Philemon Project. When you go there, you'll find a list of resources. So if you wanted to see a recording of a seminar from a previous week or recording of a sermon, uh, you could go back and listen to those again, view those again. There are also a few uh, resources recommended in terms of things that you might read or explore for further interest. We've recommended a commentary on the, the letter to Philemon, if you want to go deeper and study of that book of scripture. And recently, uh, we added a collection of artwork and imagery related to the book of Philemon as well. So if you want to kind of take a, a visual tour of images associated with that part of scripture and um, learn some lessons along the way about uh, history and the text of scripture as well, that resource is there as well. So just want to remind everybody of those resources on our webpage. And now I'm going to Ask Thurman if he'll pray for us, and, and then Luke will hand things off to you. But first, Thank let's you. pray. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this day that you've made. We rejoice. We're glad in it. Lord, we're thankful for last week. Well, really, all the time we've had together to study, but particularly we thank you for last week. And for Luke, delighting to share with us not only the gospel, but his own heart and life as well. And so we are just grateful for his vulnerability and and courage and uh, faithfulness in speaking your word and speaking truth and sharing from his own life and heart. And so we pray for this morning's time and thank you for that in advance and pray that you continue to work in us. Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence in this place and all the places where we're gathered. And we pray that you would move in us and uh, give us righteousness, joy, and peace in you in this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Good morning, everyone. Um, let me share my slides with you. Okay, again, this, um, I, I was just thinking a couple of days ago, Jimmy and Thurman, just how grateful I am for this opportunity. And Jimmy, in particular, you for allowing Stephen, myself, and Thurman at the table mm -hmm. at the beginning of this process. Uh, typically, Thurman maybe can attest to this. If, if you are non-white, you're typically brought to the table after the fact when things have already been planned. Amen. So um, that's honoring to me. Yeah. Um, so thank you. I wanted to um, just clear up a loose end from last week. Um, Jimmy received an email from someone that initiated the question about abortion and African-Americans. 
And this was Jimmy's uh, reply to Thurman, Stephen, and myself. So you guys, uh, I'll give you a chance to read that. And so this person said they were encouraged, their eyes were open, and any, any professor or teacher loves to hear those two words, eyes open, someone that's willing to learn and has learned. So thank you uh, for that acknowledgement. So this is a long title. This is our subject for today. Uh, the story of an African-American family, how slavery, Jim Crow, the civil rights era, and the present realities of a racialized society impacts them positively and negatively. Now, it's without question, we have made progress here in America. Um, we, that's undeniable, and I praise God for that. But I think what this pandemic has shown us is that um, in many ways we have taken steps backwards. We have, we have stalled. So I'm going to share some positive impacts and negative impacts. I'm going to use my family as an example, as a case study. Um, on the left-hand side, your left is my son, Caleb Avery Bobo, he's 26. On my right, your right is my daughter, Brianna Amber. Bobo, she's 31. In the middle is my wife of nearly 38 years. We'll celebrate 38 years in May. I'm trying to catch my grandparents who were married 67 years mm. before my grandmother passed. So again, enjoy the ride. And this is our story. But I need to make some caveats or make some comments early. And that is, um, here's one comment. Black families are the same and different as white families. We have experienced the same America as our white peers, and we have experienced a different America. That's why Dr. King spoke in, I think, 1967, he talked about the other America. In, in many ways, African-Americans experienced two Americas. And so here, here's the caution. You may listen to me and or listen to Thurman and listen to Stephen and say, look, look, those are examples of people that have made it. But I caution you not to do that because the black experience in America is not monolithic. It's not a one size fits all, much like your experience is not monolithic. And you may remember during the presidential election, people will often point to Candace Owens. You should Google her name, Candace Owens, and say, look, she's a black Republican. If she can agree with us, then why can't those other blacks? And I would say that was a way of pimping her. So you should Google Candace Owens. And I should say this, she doesn't speak for me. I just want to get that out right now. She doesn't speak for me. So some more first comments. Um, I just want to caution you. Anytime I teach a class, I often begin with this statement. Beware of cognitive dissonance. 
you might say, well, that's not my experience, so that cannot be true. Well, um, I, I, hope you not, I hope you don't say that because just because it's not your experience doesn't mean it's not true. And anytime we talk about race, I often say this, I'm not an angry black man. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. However, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, something should make us all angry. Mm. And, and notice what I said, as brothers and sisters in Christ, mm. something should make us all angry. Blacks are weary. <laughs> I'm weary. I'm, I'm actually weary doing this presentation. Why is it that African-Americans are always called upon to teach our white, again, our white brothers and sisters in Christ about this? We've been saying the same things for 400 years. In film and music. About what you see on TV. So there's a sense of weariness in my voice. And maybe you can pick that up. I encourage you to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 to, you can be a fact checker. <laughs> uh, examine what I say. Um, blacks are communal people. We, um, we share a connection. Uh, so when Thurman hurts, I hurt. When Thurman is successful, I, I, I celebrate with him. There's a, there's this connection between us that I cannot explain. That's right. Um, one more first comment, and that is Brian Stevenson's grandmother. And I just love grandparents. I, I love, I just adore my grandparents. Uh, his grandmother said this in the first part of the book, Just Mercy. You can't understand most of the important things from a distance. You have to get close. So I want to invite you in town to come close. And who, who else came close? Jesus Christ came close. Yeah. And so I encourage you to come close and listen in humility. And I'm going to quote Dr. Schaefer here again. Dr. Schaefer says something like this. If I had 60 minutes with an unbeliever, I would spend the, most, I would spend the, the first 55 minutes listening and asking questions. Hmm. And James says something similar, I think. He says, be slow to speak, quick to listen. So come close, grab your favorite biblical beverage, whatever, whatever that is, and just listen. Um, I'm not sure if I can tell you what my favorite one is. Well, it is wine, so I, I think I can say that. That's a biblical beverage. <laughs> Sadly, too often, instead of coming close, we cluster together. Um, and I think that has, I think, I think this subtitle is so correct. When we huddle together, in the words of Dick Kyes, when we stay in our Christian ghettos, it's tearing us apart. And I guess you are forced to hold the questions to the end because you're on mute. So, um, but I still wanted to say that. Okay, so here we are. Once upon a time, 
I was born to a teenage mother. My mother was 15 years old when she had me. And so I had three strikes against me. I was black, I was a male, and I was born to a teenage mother. So you might say I was, I was on my way to, to be in the prison, in the school to prison pipeline. But my mother, because she had to drop out of high school to raise me and my brother who came 11 months later, she, she emphasized education. Luke, get your education. Luke, get your education. So it's no wonder that I have four degrees today and I would get a fifth if my wife would let me. But she would probably divorce me if I tried to. My paternal grandparents, Willa May and Henry Bobo, my grand, grandfather was an entrepreneur. And my grandmother would say to me, Luke, when you go to college, Luke, when you go to college, Luke, when you go to college. So guess where I was going after high school? I was going to college. And so I'm, I'm just grateful for my grandparents who are like surrogate parents to me. I was first called the N-word when I was a teenager. I remember riding my bicycle and I remember exactly where I was when I was called the N-word. I was on my way to a community center to play some basketball. And um, yeah, that was several years ago. Because of education, I excelled in high school. I, I loved going to school. I didn't understand why we had holidays. I wanted to go to school even during the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, so I was told in high school, Luke, you're good in math and science, so you should pursue engineering. I said, okay, I will pursue engineering. I, will, I do remember this uh, white female peer who said to me, Luke, I bet you can do three things. I bet you can play sports. I bet you can dance. And I bet you carry a knife. Well, I could dance, I, but I, so one of the three, one out of three is not bad, that's 33%, but that's still a failing grade. <laughs> but she assumed those three things about me. That's what you call a stereotype. My wife, uh, Rita, was born to a single mother. Um, she's the second oldest. Her other siblings are all boys. There's three different fathers, four kids, three different fathers. Rita never met her biological dad. So we met at KU, Rita and I, and she tells this experience. She was pursuing business administration and she tells this story about being in finance class. She went to, to the professor during his office hours as most students would do because she was having trouble with the homework and the professor, a white professor said to my wife, you people don't do well in this class. And my wife looked around and said, what people are you talking about? Needless to say, Rita dropped that class and took it again the next semester and made an A in the, in the course. So we got married, we bought our first home in Raytown, Missouri, just, out of, just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. 
Um, and we later found out as we lived in this house for a couple of years, we later found out that our two neighbors on either side of us, they had to get verbal consent to let us move in. And if you don't know, that's a carryover from probably restricted covenants. Restrictive covenants and redlining created our suburbs. In fact, here in Kansas City, um, there's a famous name, J.C. Nichols, who created the suburbs here in Kansas City because he was instrumental in redlining and um, instituting co restrictive covenants. In fact, uh, I've been told that J.C. Nichols was often invited to Washington, D.C., to inform other people around the country how to do this, how to create these suburbs. So Rita gets her first job here in Kansas City and her white boss actually steals something that she wrote. And the boss said, uh, this is good writing, but let's pretend you didn't write it. And my, my brothers and sisters on this call may be asking, well, what recourse does she have? She had none, actually. Her boss has the power and the race, race advantage. And her peers are most likely to believe her because she's white than my wife. That's, that's the reality we live in. I get my first job at Bendix Aerospace here in Kansas City in the early 1980s. And I still remember one of my colleagues, um, if I said his name, I still remember his name. This happened over 30 years ago. He was from Iowa. He and another white peer and I were walking to the vending machine in the afternoon just to break up the monotony to, because we were, you know, we were getting weary, a long day at the office and this white, male engineering colleague said to me, Luke, you know you're the token engineer, right? I, I don't think I, 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 <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know how to respond to that. And so the next day, um, I'm glad I didn't because the next day he apologized um, in his defense, but Maya Angelou says something like the following. When someone shows you who, who they are the first time, you believe them. And so he showed me who he was by saying that statement. But black folks, we kind of get it both ways. Uh, and I alluded to this at the very beginning. Um, one of my high school classmates also worked at Bendix, African-American. He said to me, Luke, why are you dressing with a tie on? Are you trying to act white? So we not only get it from white folks, we get it from our own people. So we, we're a strange lot in many ways. And I'm sure Thurman can attest to that. So as I said, I love learning. I've earned a, a bachelor's in engineering, a master's in engineering, uh, a MDiv, I graduated with honors. Uh, earned a PhD, but I still suffer from, and I'm not, not sure if Thurman su suffers from this or not, but it's called the imposter syndrome. And if you are a non-white person, 
male or female, you likely struggle with this as well. This, this whole notion that you're not good enough, that you need to do more than your white peers to make it. It's like my sister and I, we talk about this often. She says, you have to bring your A game. There's never a time I can let down or be a slacker. I have to bring my A game. And so that brings me to my book. And so just imagine how I feel when you're under this pressure to always do well, that you're never good enough to find typos in your book. And so you feel like a failure. And I've taken a page from uh, Dr. Anthony Bradley. I think you know Anthony. I've taken a page from his book or from his, um, his experience in the classroom. Anthony says he, he puts all his credentials on his syllabus just to prove to himself that he belongs. And I do the same. I've told you already that I love math. So here's my, here's my equation that I think about often um, since I struggle with the imposter syndrome. And sadly, in the 21st century, I'm still judged by the color of my skin, not the content of my ca character. So you might say I, I experienced a double whammy. And again, I often say, you know, I'm not looking for your pity. It, it's just, it's just reality for us, for me. And I, I can't speak for Thurman, um, but I suspect it's, it's the same for him as well. This whole notion of not being good enough uh, is planted early. Uh, some of you may or may not be familiar with uh, the famous doll test in the 1940s. This test was repeated in 2015 with similar results. And I'm going to stop sharing now. And uh, Jimmy and Billy, or I guess Billy or uh, Nigel are going to play a video uh, for me. So take it away. Every black female has a big butt and big boobs. Loud, obnoxious, ghetto. Light skin being more attractive than dark skin. We're not smart. We're this way, we're that way. And a lot of times we have to prove ourselves as not being true. At a young age, I already knew the standards for a girl like me. As I become older, they become more obvious. You have to have permed hair, relaxed hair. You know, straight hair or like blonde hair, you know, long weaves or something. And if it's natural, that's even, that's, that's good hair. Like bad hair is hair you have to relax because it's kinky. Like it's not like appealing to have like natural hairstyles or like if they are natural, they have to be like the curly head, like black girl or something that looks mixed or something. And I remember when I first started wearing my hair natural, at first my mom was okay with it. And she, she thought it, it looked nice. And then after like the second day, she was like, oh, stop that. She was like, you're starting to look African. I was like, well, I am African. And that really pissed me off. There are standards that are imposed upon us. Like, um, you know, you're pretty, you're prettier if you're light skinned. I knew people in the past that like, just like, 
wanted to be light-skinned, not for any particular reason, you know, because they love themselves. I mean, they, they love themselves except for, you know, the color of their skin. Like my siblings are all lighter than me, and my um, my mom, she's dark-skinned, but she's lighter than me. So, like, I noticed, and I was like, hey, how come I'm the darkest? And, you know, everybody else is so light, and I don't know. Since I was younger, I, I also considered being lighter as a form of beauty or, you know, beautiful more bet you know beautiful than being dark-skinned so I used to think of myself as being ugly because I was dark-skinned I knew people who actually like went out there and got you know bleaching cream and everything they actually like you like laid in the tub like poured like capfuls of bleach into it just so they could like see if their skin would get lighter but yeah my aunt that lives in Honduras, she basically started using skin bleaching cream when she was about 25. And she started her oldest daughter on it when she was about 11. And then she has an even younger daughter that was about six when she started using the skin bleaching cream on her. I've seen people say that I would never marry a dark skinned man because, you know, because I don't want that in my gene pool. On the other hand, like some girls have their issues too. We've been called high Ella conceited house nigga. I feel like both sides have their issues. I guess I sort of felt like I there was not any attention towards me because of maybe my skin color or because my hair was kinky or you know just basically that or even when also when I was younger like say there was there was I don't know a doll. I used to have a lot of dolls but most of them were just white dolls with long straight hair that I would comb and I would be like, oh, I wish I was just like this Barbie doll. In Brown versus Board of Education, the famous case that desegregated schools in the 1950s, Dr. Kenneth Clark conducted a doll test with black children. He asked them to choose between a black doll and a white doll. In most instances, the majority of the children preferred the white doll. I decided to reconduct this test as Dr. Clark did to see how we've progressed since then. Can you show me the doll that you like best or that you'd like to play with? This one. I like that one. Okay. This one. That one? I like to play with can you show me the doll that is the nice doll? And why is that the nice doll? She's white. And can you show me the doll that looks bad? Okay. And can you give, and why does that look bad? Because it's black. And why do you think that's a nice doll? Because she's white. And can you give me the doll that looks like you? Fifteen out of the 21 children preferred the white doll. Our ancestors came to, the, to this country and they were pretty much ripped, ripped out of their culture. You know, they couldn't speak their language. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't be themselves. They had to be like, like what everybody else told them to be. When you don't know where you're from and you don't know what country you're from, all you know is basically you're from Africa. That's all you're given. I feel like it brings on like 
a lot of ignorance and it it builds a lot of anger. I've seen like I've seen it build a lot of anger in a lot of black young females. Like Thank you, know, Nigel. Like if you can stop the video. Thank you. I'm gonna share my slides again. So something is happening um, in our country that kids that age would conclude that the white doll is nice and they're they are not nice because of their skin color. I, I have my suspicions what the reasons are and. I can share those at another time. So let me talk about my beautiful kids. And I, I should tell you that I am just honored to be the, the dad to these two. Um, they're knuckleheads, but I love them. They're my knuckleheads. So this is my daughter, Brianna. She was born in December, um, on December 28th. And the reason why 1988 is italicized is because I had just finished my master's in engineering, and I'm afraid that if I hadn't finished by then, I probably would have still been working on it. But um, my daughter, we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood in St. Louis. My daughter has always been a great writer. She wrote this uh, science report so well at Selvage Middle School, a predominantly white uh, middle school. And her science teacher thought she had plagiarized. And so my wife had to march up there to the school and say, I was at the same kitchen table when I saw my daughter write that report. My daughter has always scored high on the language arts. She's just off the charts on those national tests. She did so well in Spanish that she transferred several, I think nine hours of college credit to um, Indiana University from high school in Spanish to um, Indiana University. She wrote her first book as a fifth grader. And in fact, she's the first one to be published in our family. Uh, this is a book she wrote. Avery is my son's middle name. Um, so it's entitled, entitled Avery, Let Down Your String of Paper Clips. Uh, my daughter still has a great imagination. Um, and I told you that black folks can be pretty strange. We can criticize our own um, folks. So um, in St. Louis, they would bust kids out to the suburbs where we stayed. And some of these black kids would come out. And uh, because my daughter talked so well, she was accused of talking white. So again, we, we get it from both sides at times. Today, my daughter is 31 years old. She's a supervisor at BJC in St. Louis, Born Jewish Hospital. She's been rewarded for taking the initiative on several occasions. She's an entrepreneur. She has her own company called B Social, and she has introduced her, her slow dad to buying stock. So when we first moved to uh, St. Louis, um, our real estate agent tried to steer us away from the suburbs to a place called Blackjack in St. Louis. And Jimmy and Thurman know about Blackjack, it's predominantly, predominantly black. 
she tried to steer us away from predominantly white neighborhoods. Again, a part of restrictive covenants and redlining, keeping white, white, and black, black. This is my son, Caleb. Um, he's a knucklehead, and I'll tell you why I call him a knucklehead. Uh, he finished high school in three years. He's a very bright young man. Um, he could have finished University of Kansas in three and a half years, but we encouraged him to stay that additional semester. Um, because he had a concern for the low number of African-American men graduating from KU, he started the Black Men Union. His, his hope was to increase the numbers of African-American males graduating. It's, it's abysmal, the numbers, less than 10% of black men that attend KU actually graduate. So he wanted to up those numbers. He graduates from KU with honors. Just amazing how well he did there. He was part of a select class to enter SLU and he graduated there in, in a, couple, a couple of years with the masters. He's been asked to move back to St. Louis because his former employer wants him back. And they pretty much said to my son, Caleb, you name your salary, we want you back. 26 years old, but I worry most about him. Of my two kids, and Thurman has sons, I worry most about my son because of these three young men. Arberry, I'm sure you guys know, died there in Georgia. And who can forget George Floyd? And maybe you don't know Tamir Rice on the far right. He, he was in the park playing with a toy gun and police killed him. If I ever have grandkids, they would not have toy guns. So why do I call my son a knucklehead? Um, this is something I learned that black mothers would say to white masters coming for their black sons. Uh, black mothers would say to white masters, oh, my son, he's a knucklehead. He's, he's shiftless and lazy. He's, a, he's, he's dumb as an ox. You don't want him. So these black mothers would denigrate their sons to save their life. And so when I call my son a knucklehead, it's a carryover. It's, it's amazing how things get passed down from generation to generation. And you can find more about that in this book. I heard this, this speaker, this author speak at UMKC, University of Missouri, Kansas City, here in Kansas City. She, she shared that story about denigrating the save our kids' lives. So my wife and I saw Hamilton. Uh, I'm, I'm, I am obsessed with this musical. I bought the book. I read the 700 page book. I have downloaded the two soundtracks, but um, we're like Hamilton. We work, my wife and I work like we're running out of time. We are both driven in other words, but that has cost us. This notion to be driven and to be excellent has cost us. And it's uh, captured in this tweet that I saw uh, in February. 
my heart is breaking, this tweet says, there's a black woman in place, I took the place out, crying in a room because I get hired for being black and then fired for being excellent. I resonate, I'm about to make this networking connection because we have to show solidarity. Again, there's a, there's a, certain, there's a certain solidarity among blacks and we have to support one another. Now, let me translate this for, for you all. She was hired for being black means she's a she's an affirmative action hire. Check box. We've done our duty. Yay. Pat us pat ourselves on the back. Fired for being excellent means some white person was intimidated by her truth telling and or because she was doing excellent work. Now you think if you think that's outlandish. It's happened to my wife and I. It happened to me in St. Louis. I was working for a Christian nonprofit, and that's important. A Christian nonprofit. I was told I was told to speak up more because I was a director. I spoke up more, and I was unjustly terminated and given a very generous severance package. We call that hush hush money. Just go away quietly. Now I'm in a place now where my colleagues will say, we wish Luke speaks up more. <laughs> you know why I don't speak up more? Because of that past experience. My wife was told at a company there in St. Louis, I'm not going to mention the company, but she did excellent work there. She was told to tone it down, take your boxing gloves off, Two white females actually sabotaged my wife's career there. And two, and secondly, and my wife was given a generous severance package. Again, this go away quietly. That's hush money. And can you say deja vu? It happened again to my wife here in Kansas City. We've been here almost six years now. This time we said, we're not, we're not going to take this this time. So we sued or she sued and she won a settlement. And I think this is quite um, telling. Uh, our family has been disrupted at least five times. And each of those five times has been due to job loss initiated by a white person or persons. Now I'm gonna tell you um, why it's so hurtful for me is because my two instances were both at Christian organizations. And that shouldn't be so. Maybe we're not brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe, maybe you do see me as a slave. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why Christians don't treat other Christians well. Maybe we haven't heeded what Philemon is urging, what Paul is urging Philemon to do. He, he's more than a slave, he's a brother. Our encounters with the police have been pretty mild. In fact, I, I took a 11 week Citizens Police Academy course because I wanted to understand. I wanted to come close. And you can, you can 
You can see me there. You can point me out, I'm sure, right? <laughs> I, I left this class with a great appreciation for what police officers do, but I still have uh, trust issues. I still have trust trust issues. And, and one of the reasons is this sad story. If you haven't seen this film, When They See Us, I'm going to tell you that it was hard to see. It's, it's a four-part series, and I wanted to not even watch the other three after seeing the first part of this series. It, it just breaks your heart. It makes you... It makes you say what my niece often says why do they hate us uncle why do they hate us and so one of the legacies of jim crow and slavery and the civil rights era is um and you shouldn't hopefully not surprised but i have i have difficulty trusting white people initially and and we say why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria in a book is named such because it's hard to trust our white brothers and sisters and what's is most sad it's hard even to trust our white brothers and sisters in christ and that's the harsh reality and here's one of the reasons why it's hard to trust um if you don't know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, um, you, you should learn about it. But this experiment went on for 40 years during Jim Crow. And you might not know this or remember this, but um, Bill Clinton actually apologized to all the survivors and families that were impacted by this experiment. When Bill Clinton was in office, he apologized. If you don't know the story, uh, 600 illiterate black men participated in a study that they didn't know they were participating in. 201 of these men did not have syphilis. 399 did have syphilis. Now, it's debatable, did the government give these men syphilis or did they already have syphilis? But here's the most inhumane thing we know about this experiment. The government had a cure, penicillin, but they wanted to see what untreated syphilis would do to these illiterate, vulnerable black men. So that's why many black men have difficulty going to a white doctor. A longer lasting legacy was black distrust. And so I, I, I hope you begin to see or connect the dots here. Even my barber said he's not taking the vaccine. It's because of experiments like the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And be rest assured there were other experiments done on vulnerable populations in this country. So I'm going to, um, how much time do I have? Um, 
a few more minutes. So read this case study. And then we'll conclude with this. And I posted this on Facebook. Give you another minute to read this. Read it slowly. So I hope you get the, the gist of what my task was. I wanted to repair the fence because it was an eyesore. I love taking care of my yard. I have pride in taking care of my home. So I just wanted to fix a fence. So what do I carry with me besides my hammer and nails? Any guesses? I carry my wallet because I may have to produce identification to prove that I live in the neighborhood. Or as a friend said on Facebook, you may need your identification if you're shot and killed so they can identify the body. And I also take my camera, my cell phone, so I can get actual footage if I were to be engaged in a conversation with a, a white neighbor. Now, I think you know me somewhat as best you can through Zoom. I think you can tell without me boasting here that I'm a person of character. But this is the life that I have to live. So I've just told you my story. That's an ongoing story, but that's my story. And as the words, uh, so I'm not sure who came up with these words, but that's my story and I'm sticking with it. So the end. So I'm not sure what to do now, Jimmy. I, I, don't, I don't think we have time for questions or do we? I think for, for some questions, I uh, probably five, six minutes, maybe answer a, a question or two if folks would like to post those in our chat on Zoom. Um, so while we wait to see if, if a couple of questions come in, I'll make a comment. Uh, Luke, you uh, shared with us again in a very vulnerable way um, and and I think those of us who have never experienced life as a minority, um, we may not understand the courage that, that it takes to do what you just did. So I just wanna say thank you. I really appreciate your sharing and doing that personally um, and trusting us uh, with those things. Even as you say, that trust doesn't always come easily. Um, one other thing I'll point out, you mentioned Dr. Schaefer. I'll just remind everybody, some folks who are with us on the call this morning will know the name of Dr. Francis Schaefer. He was a leader in uh, the denomination of which in town is a part. And if you're not familiar with his life and ministry or his writings, I'd encourage you to become that. Um, and uh, earlier this week, I was listening to a lecture by one of Dr. Schaefer's uh, biographers and sometimes you learn things about your heroes that make that leave you a little sad, a little disappointed. 
But this week I had a different experience. I learned some things about Dr. Schaefer that I'd never known before that made me respect him even more. Among those things, I learned that when he was in college at Hampton Sydney University, he went out of his way to attend a, a Sunday school class that was uh, for uh, African-Americans predominantly. And uh, several instances like that throughout his life that I was just unaware of, of where he was at a time when it would have been uh, very risky for him. He was going out of his way to uh, build bridges with folks who are not like him. So uh, maybe I'll share some more of those stories another time with Intel, but just wanted everybody to know that Dr. Schaefer you mentioned is uh, Dr. Francis Schaefer. So, um, Likewise, Jimmy, I found out that Albert Einstein, you know, the guy with his crazy looking hair, he too went out of his way to help um, blacks and, and advocate for blacks and to have rights and, and uh, et cetera. Thanks. Well, Luke, I don't see any questions coming in, but I'll, I, I wonder if uh, Thurman, can I put you on the spot? D- maybe do you have something that you'd encourage Luke to follow up on, something that he mentioned that, that I, he could share? I, could I, could I uh, add to that, Jimmy, by absolutely sure. Thurman, um, for example, have you had any bad experiences with the police or have, have your sons? Um, that's a good question. There's yes, not, I mean, not, not anything fatal, anything like that, but suspicious, um, looks, conversations. I mean, we all kind of know the, when you walk in the store and you have somebody follow you around in the store to make sure you're not taking anything. Um, I mean, I, I've talked with people about the talk. You know what I'm saying? That you have with your kids who drive. And that is when, like you show them, like when you get pulled over, like you take your, your license and your things and you put them on the, um, on the dash and you put your hands up there so they can see them. So that when the, the officer comes, they can see everything is already there. Mm-hmm. Because you, you don't know. You don't know. And so you want there to be no cause for anything. Um, and that's just kind of our, our experience. Um, man, Luke, I appreciate so much your vulnerability and, and man, like what you said, there's so much of what you said that I resonated with, but, but just that talking of, of sharing each other's burdens of us being a communal people, man, that like, that's absolutely true. Like I feel you on, on all those things that you said. Um, and thank you. Thank you for doing that. You're welcome. Thank you, uh, Thurman. Can I just say this, Jimmy? Um, I, um, I love the church. I love God's word, but I often wonder, um, People tell me not to be cynical. Hmm. I, I just wonder what will it take from our white brothers and sisters to get it and, and to move from saying, I'm sorry, to actually doing something that's concrete. So, so we don't have to have a nine week series on a 21 verse letter. 
What, what, what would it take? You, I know you're sitting under good preaching. Jimmy is an excellent preacher. I, I know he's a great expositor of the New Testament because he knows that Greek. I, I'm a, I am a living witness and I survived Greek with him. Survived. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I love Greek because of that. I, I'm honest, I love Greek. Because I, I can hear his voice in my head when I'm, when I'm exegeting a New Testament passage. Context is king. Context is king. I bet Trisha's heard that a time or two in the in their home. So I, yeah, God is good. Luke, thanks for sharing that again. That's um vulnerability and i i uh i got an email this week from somebody who's just really struggling to hang on to hope because of the circumstances of their life right now and one of the things i took away from reading that email was um there are times when when we have to stand in the gap for others and hold on to hope that they can't see and um that that's what i that's what i hear in your voice luke uh as as you wrestle with uh what you call cynicism um it just reminds me that that uh part of my calling as your brother is to hold on to a hope that things can change and then to to be part of that change uh, in in the ways that the Lord is calling me to. Um, part of why we're spending so many weeks doing this, as you guys know, because we talked about it, is um, in town is a thirty five ish year old church. We've been around the block a bit, but in that history. There's not been a period of 10 weeks when InTown has sat under the leadership of black men. And we need to experience that. That needs to be experienced not just for a week or two, um, but for long enough for, for us to b build these relationships that you feel comfortable showing this kind of vulnerability and that we get a sense of what it means to come close and listen um, so that, uh, so that we can do what, what I'm finding, uh, is it was actually a characteristic of Dr. Schaefer's ministry, um, that, uh, was more about personal relationships than anything else. So the, the thing that has gotten me more interested than anything else in doing what I can to heal the division uh, among our races. The thing that's gotten me more interested than anything else in um, helping the church to grow in this area is friendship with you guys. It, it isn't reading articles. It isn't reading books. It isn't studying movements or being part of a cause. It's just knowing you well enough to hear grief in your voices 
and, and then learn, why have I not been listening? Why have I been ignoring that sadness? Why have I not asked Luke more deeply about this cynicism? Why have I stayed comfortable instead of coming close? And, and it's those personal relationships more than anything else um, that I find is, is really impacting my own life and heart. It is doing what the scriptures say. It's being a brother um, and listening like a brother to brothers and to sisters. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can just live some of that out, model that, pursue that more fiercely um, as the people of God in weeks, months, years to come. Um, I'll take a moment just to share uh, one thing I learned this week about, about that. A story from Dr. Schaefer, some of his earliest ministry was with children, sharing the gospel with children. And um, one of the children he had the opportunity to uh, share the gospel with became a believer in Jesus and was discipled under Dr. Schaefer's ministry, had Down syndrome. And uh, as Dr. Schaefer was dying of cancer, his daughter asked him, what do you think is the most significant thing you did in ministry? And he said, um, he said, the name of that little boy who had come to faith and who had uh, remained a, a Christian for his entire life. Um, that connection personally, rather than with, with cause or issue or um, abstract theory, but just getting to know people and loving people, um, that's what's having the most profound impact on my own heart. I can't speak for every person, but um, I would just encourage all of us as, as uh, believers in Jesus, especially white Christian brothers and sisters, I would encourage us pursue relationships. If, um, if you're tired of hearing headlines, if you're tired of listening to stories, and if you're tired of hearing lectures, then listen to people. Draw close and listen to people. Most of us, because the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, our hearts are too tender and soft to close off to those we know. If we will come close and listen. Maybe you have enough um, fatigue in your system to harden your heart against the headlines or to harden your heart against uh, a lecture. But because the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, I don't think you have enough strength to harden your heart against your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Let's hold out that hope, um, especially when we need to stand in the gap for those who, uh, who may not have that hope. Let me, let me uh, make a shameless plug if I could. I'm going to ask Thurman to make a shameless plug in a moment for something different. Um, but I'm going to make a shameless plug for a book written by a friend of mine. Uh, this is a book called Race, Economics, and Apologetics. Is There a Connection? And it's written by a guy named Luke Bobo. Who is that? Who is that? George yeah. Washington Carver is on the line, but there's no <laughs> Luke Bobo. Uh, this is a transcription uh, turned into book form of, of a talk or series of talks that Luke gave 
at one point. I found it really uh, insightful. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty short book and so uh, quick read, but one of the things that I find happens in my own life is that um, when I have a personal relationship with someone, then when I read books or articles they have written or recommended, they have a deeper impact on me. So I would hope that many at InTown could purchase this book, read it, and would have a deeper impact because you now know uh, Luke Bobo, and he shared his heart and his story with you. So you could listen uh, and benefit from his teaching again through this. And Luke has written other books as well, but I'll recommend this one. And it's the sort of book that I'd say, hey, buy a copy, read it, pass it on to someone else and let them read it as well. Um, so that's my shameless commercial for, um, for a great resource uh, by Luke Boba. Thank you, Luke, for the, the work reflected here. Uh, Thurman, Jimmy, I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a cut of the proceeds. For it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, well, was, know, uh, that was actually right a lecture. Here. That was actually a lecture that I gave um, in 2018 in Chicago. So that's why it's so, so short. But uh, for that shameless plug, expect a, uh, a cut of the royalties. Yes. Well, Luke, having having written a book and having cashed all those royalty checks, um, yeah, I'll be surprised if we get uh, you know much above the two dollar amount there. Yeah, you get your you get your quarter, I get my dollar. How about that? I know how that works. Yeah. I know how that works. Yeah. Um, hey, Thurman, tell sure. us what's coming up in a few minutes. I saw someone just asked for the name of that book again. Oh, yes, it's Race, Economics, and Apologetics. Yes. Race, Economics, and Apologetics uh, by Luke Bobo. So the shameless plug that I'm making is to join us as we really continue a lot of the themes that Luke brought up in this, in this teaching time. Join us for worship at 1045 via live stream, as well as um, those that are coming here in person. And Jimmy and I are going to be team teaching together. We saw a great example of that last week with Jimmy and Stephen. And so we're team teaching um, talking about why we're hopeful. What are the resources that God has given to us to continue the fight, to continue to go, to continue to work towards justice, to continue to work towards unity and reconciliation together? So please join us for that. Great. Yep. Thanks, Sermon. Well, I'm going to pray for us. And thank you again, Luke. Thank you, Jimmy. Lord God, would you please bless uh, everything that we've done together in this time. There are so many hurdles and hindrances and barriers. One of them is just the weariness that uh, can be felt. And another is cynicism. Mm -hmm. Another is, um, is, is this difficult question as, as white Christians ask, what can we do? And we hear Luke say, well, stop asking me that question. <laughs> but we really don't know what to do. And so that can become an impasse, but you can help us over it, Holy Spirit. You can work mm -hmm. in your people. You can help us to make progress. Um, one of the barriers we experience is just technology. We would love to be doing all of this face-to-face. -face. We're not able to because of a pandemic, and therefore we're having to do all of this through Zoom. You, Holy Spirit, can do more through this means than we could ever imagine. And so we pray that you would do that out of mercy. We pray that you would bless Luke and Rita and their family. Would you return to them a reward upon reward for their 
faith in you and their trust in you, even as they have followed you in good times and hard times. Lord, thank you for gifting us with this time together and this uh, patient, wise teacher who is leading us today. Now would you knit our hearts more, more closely to you and to one another as we share and worship, and would you give the Spirit's power to Thurman and to me as we preach together, and would more good fruit come out of this time together than we could possibly dream simply because you are gracious to those who are desperately needy. We pray in the name of Jesus, the root and the source of all of that grace. Amen. Amen. Amen.